Before we get started, I want to ask one question. Why are you here today? Right? This is probably something that you do weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, I don't know, Christmas and Easter. But you're here. And why are you here? Internalize it for a second. Because the way I see it, I think there's two groups. I'm generalizing. We all fit somewhere on the spectrum of this, but there's, there's two groups here today. Uh, our world's a little crazy. I think we could all say that. And just so you know, be reassured, our world isn't any crazier than it's ever been. People are great at crazy, okay? Right now, our country is just working really hard to confirm that. But humanity has been crazy since the beginning of humanity. Don't worry about it. But some of you are here because out there is chaos, and you want to find a safe place. You want to get away from the outside, come inside where it's safe, and we can all feel safe and comfortable together. That's, that's one group, and that's fine. You're in a great place. This is a good place to do that. And then there's the other group. There's another group of people that there's chaos internally, and that there's that, the, that there's violence and chaos and, and things that you want to escape from, but they're internal. They're in here. And you're looking for a safe place so that you can let those out. And I'm glad you're here. You're in the right place. And so for me, I grew up as a normal person, just like a normal, average, middle-class, Grand Junction white kid. Very unimpressive story. Okay, of, of superhero stories, mine would be the lamest, no one would watch the first one, and I'd never get a sequel. And, and I grew up, and I didn't grow up in the church. I, I grew up in a family that wasn't, we weren't anti-church, we weren't pro-church, we weren't anti-religion, we weren't for religion, we just kind of were apathetic to it. It just didn't really exist. But I had friends who went to church, and I had friends who were in church, and uh, whenever I'd spend the night, you know, I'd, I'd get to go to their church. And I get to see their church, and I was intrigued and fascinated by church. I was actually not one of those who was scared by it or, you know, put off by it. I actually thought it was really interesting and fun. And the more liturgical and the more ceremony and the more stand up, sit down, do this, do that, dab yourself with the water, do the other thing, I loved it. Like, I, th I thought it was so interesting. I had one friend that I spent the night at his house a lot, and he was Catholic. And I loved it. Old St. Joe's, the old church that's no longer standing that one, we'd go there, and I loved it. I let you go in, and there's a little, and I'm like, what do I, wait, which hand do I do? Which way do I go? And then I do this, and then we got a, you know, Tim Tebow before we go in the aisle, and, and I, I loved it. I thought the ceremony was great. You know, the priest would walk in, he'd be swinging the incense, and he'd be like, wow, this is so cool. And I'd look up, and I'd see the stations of the cross, the gruesome, you know, they, they love to depict the gruesomeness of the crucifixion, and I'm just like, Wow. And I was super jealous because I could never go get that little wafer, and I always wanted to know what it tasted like when they went and did communion. And then, and then uh, one time I got to sing in the uh, Christmas choir for their midnight mass in the kids' choir, and there was no adults on stage next to me to stop me from going. So when the group went to get communion, I was like, this is now or never. We're going. <laughs> and I loved it. And then in, uh, in fifth grade, I, I got sent to, uh, I got pulled out of my public school and I got sent to Holy Family Catholic School, obviously because I was behaving so well. <laughs> and when I went there and I was amongst all classmates who had all one shared identity, that's when I realized like I, I, I longed for an identity. I longed for what they had. 
And, and that doesn't say anything about their, their, their faith or their spirituality or their commitment. You know, they were probably just dragged there like I was. They probably wanted to go to public school. I don't know. But I was envious of their shared identity. They had something. They were part of a group, and I, I didn't have it. And now I'm almost turning 40, and I'm looking back, and you start unpacking things from your childhood, the older you get, and you start, you know, as you gradually go down life, probably a lot of you guys have this, like, light bulbs kind of turn on. You're like, oh, okay, I suddenly understand that about me. That was because of when I was three, right? Which is very frightening as a parent. Like, every day I'm like, what am I doing that they're going to be unpacking when they're 40? <laughs> probably a lot. Um, and uh, I realized that, that, for me, I grew up at about two years old, my parents separated. I have zero memories of my parents being together. Zero. No idea what that was like. Don't remember that household. Um, my memories of my parents' relationships start with my mom crying in the kitchen, and they move forward. And so for me, that really affected my identity. Because when I got into elementary school, and it'd be after school, and the kids that came from married families, still living together under one roof, the mom would come because the dad would be working, and, and because they're all under one household, especially back in the 80s, you know, you could still afford then to have just one parent working, so the mom stayed home, and she'd show up, and he, you know, the kids would get to go there, and they get to go home and play and have a snack and a Capri Sun and an orange slice, and I got to go with the smelly old lady in the cafeteria for three hours. And bless her, she was a wonderful woman, but um, you know, I always felt like, I want that. And the thing is, if you've grown up in a divided home, in a split home, where you're bouncing from house to house, uh, because that's what was going on, mom had to get a job, dad had a job, you know, and they're separate income, separate houses, is that you're bouncing back and forth between two cultures, basically. Two sets of rules, two lifestyles, two ways of doing things. Over here, we're with mom, and we do things this way, and this is the culture, and I'm a single child, and it's just me and mom. And then I go over here, and I'm getting chased by this stranger who I'm supposed to call brother with a wiffle bat, and I'm running for my life, and now he's choking my other stranger I'm supposed to call brother, and brand new sisters crying in the corner and getting all the attention, and then back and forth, and back and forth. And I realized that it affected my identity. I'd never really fully settled into who I was. Who am I? And I think a lot of us are, you know, we, we, even if you grew up in a, in a household that had parents together, you probably, you probably struggled through identity too. It's a very human thing. And so as I grew up, you know, you start to search for identity in other things. You know, looked for it in sports. That didn't work out so well. You know, trying to play basketball and, you, you, you know, you're 5'2 until like the ninth grade, you're going to get overlooked for a lot of teams. And so that didn't work. So then I, I, I found it in Theater, okay, that's a fun one. That's an interesting group of people. That's a unique identity. But always searching for it. And then I ended up in a youth group. And this youth group was led by Paul Watson, downtown Vineyard senior pastor. When I say end up, um, it was more I chased these two sisters into youth group. I didn't care which one I got. They were both... You know, I thought they were both very beautiful, and whichever one I got, I was just going to chase. It didn't matter. And they ran from me into youth group, so I followed. I was in pursuit. And uh, I was sitting there one, one morning, and Paul was talking about, he was talking about uh, prayer, about how, praying for others. Hey, this is how you pray for others. You know, someone wants prayer, you come up and you do this. Can I get any volunteers? Right? And I'm just sitting there, chasing girls, not worried about it, whatever, Paul. And Paul's like, hey, I need a volunteer so I can pray for someone. And all of a sudden, ding. 
Did my hand just do that? And Paul calls me up. And, and what happened in that moment was God woke something up in me. What was really going on is that God was doing something in me. And he was calling me. And he was using, yeah, he was using these avenues. What, you know, what I meant for just trying to get a girlfriend, he meant for calling me into him. He used that. And, and God was calling me into him. And, and I knew in that moment what was really going on with that hand is I was like, I want to belong. I want to belong to something. And God was calling me and saying, belong to me. Belong to me. And so I went up there and I got prayer. And that was it. That was the moment. I was in. I was in at that moment. I'd found my thing. And so I started volunteering for everything I could volunteer for in Paul's youth group. You know, I started trying to be a leader, trying to do Bible study, trying to do all that because I found my thing. I was in with God. That was my thing. And so I want to read, um, I want to read about, am I doing something, John? All right. I want to read out of Luke 15. Because this is my, this is the thing. This is me finding my identity in God. So in Luke 15, Jesus has been hanging out. See, he's hanging out with the dirty people, right? He's hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors. And the religious people don't like it. They're like, Jesus, I don't mind that you're teaching about God, but can we not have them? This is our safe place. And so Jesus tells them this story. Jesus says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So, I don't know a lot about shepherding, okay? But when Jesus says, what of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And the people listening are going, uh, none of us, Jesus. N none of us would do that. That's ridiculous. Why would we leave the 99 that we're supposed to be protecting and go after the one dumb one that's straight off. None of us would do that. See, our job's to protect the sheep, Jesus. Why would we leave them unprotected to go chase this one silly sheep? So it's ridiculous. It's actually a terrible story, Jesus. Why are you telling us this dumb story? This doesn't make any sense. But see, this is the thing. The gospel is ridiculous. And that's the beauty of it. And this is what I fell in love with when I started coming to church. And I found out that God would call me. Is I found out that it is ridiculous. But I loved it. That God, that I was the sheep. When I raised my hand in church, I, this is what I was identifying to. I was identifying to the fact that I'm the sheep. God would do the ridiculous thing and he would hunt me down. And he would call me and he would bring me in. And look at this. Not only is it ridiculous, it's physical. Is it's physical, as you can imagine that Jerusalem, the area where Jesus is teaching, whether it's in Galilee or, you know, this whole part of where, where Israel is located is very deserty and rocky and, and hilly. It's a lot like, 
you know, the outsides of our valley. And so you can imagine this shepherd, one sheep strays and he's like, and he leaves the rest in an open plain. In other words, like menu board for predators. And he leaves the 99 there and he goes searching for the one and he's hiking up and down over rocks, over hills, searching for this one sheep, looking for it until he finds it. So he's all tired if you've been hunting and you're hiking trying to find an animal and then you find the animal and, and you've been out hiking and you're like three miles into your hike and you're like, I'm not even shooting it. That's a beautiful animal. Someone take a picture because if I shoot that, it's going to run another mile. And now that's four. And then I got to cut it up and I got to put it on my back and I got to hike it back four miles. And then I got to go get more of it. And this is what's going on is, is, is he's doing this hiking and then he finds the sheep and he picks the sheep up. He's not just like, you dumb sheep, whacks it on the head and goes, follow me, we're going back. He's not just putting a leash on it, dragging it back. He finds the sheep and he picks it up and he throws it on his shoulders and he marches back over the same hills, over the same rocks, the same tiring hike until he gets back. It's physical. Jesus is trying to show you the physicality of this until he gets back and he gets back to the other 99, and they're all dead. The wolves came. And he puts the sheep down. See, it's physical, and it's ridiculous that he'd go for this one hike over all of this stuff, carrying the sheep back, sweating, putting out the effort for this one sheep when he still had 99. But that was the beautiful thing when I first started coming to church, and I first realized that God loved me. I was like, he would do that for me? He would do that hike for me. I'm all in. I'm the sheep. Jesus goes on. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing. Lady's got 10 coins. She's counting through them. Oh no, I lost one. Where's my one coin? She puts down the nine, sets them aside. Starts looking under this, looking under that, lifting the couch cushions, pulling up the rug. I can't find it. Where's my coin? Gets on her hands and knees, digging around, starts moving furniture. Has to figure it out. All right, we got to systemize this way of finding this coin now. I, I can't figure out where it is. All right, I'm going to put all the furniture. I'm just going to start moving things from here to here. Starts moving the desk, moving the table, moving the couch. Starts moving all the furniture, searching for this one coin, physical. She still has nine coins. Can't find it, can't find it. Goes through the whole house. Where is the... There it is. I'm going to go put it back with the other nine. Where's the other nine? They're under the pile that I just created. Gets excited, calls out, Martha, I found the one coin. I don't care. Go to bed. And she's super excited, and that was me. The coin. That was me. That was what I was signing on to. God got on his hands and knees, searching all around just to find me. He had you other nine, but he was seeking me out. And so I was all in. I was all in to the God thing. I uh, started wearing every WWJD bracelet you could find. Pretty soon, all of my normal t-shirts were replaced by 
cheesy, cliche Christian t-shirts. I had uh, bumper stickers. I didn't just have one fish. I had two fish on the back of my car, okay? That's real commitment. Turn left, there's my fish. Turn right, there's my fish. You can see it other, under each blinker. I was in, got rid of all of my non-Christian CDs, only bought the Christian ones, all in. It was my identity. Went to college, got into a, a college ministry there, started leading, all in. That was my identity. But see, Jesus is creating a pattern here because he wants to add something deeper. So it's ridiculous that the lady did this to find her coin. It's ridiculous that the shepherd did this to find the sheep. It's physical, and it's ridiculous. But he did it because he wanted that one. The one is that valuable to him. That's the pattern Jesus is creating. Now he's going to tell another parable so that he can drive in a deeper truth. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided the property among them. So, that's just, we got to stop right here so we understand the context. Make sure that we understand it. So, back in Jesus' day, right, wealth was just passed down. It's, wealth was passed down. There was no Roth IRAs. There was no bank accounts. There was nothing like that. It was estate wealth. All the wealth you had was in your estate. It was physically with you. And, and it was passed down from father to sons. It didn't go through the, through the daughters. It went from father to sons. And the oldest son got the majority of the inheritance. And then the younger sons would get the remainder divided up among them. But, come on, this, nothing's changed from then to now. How do you get an inheritance? Somebody dies. Right? Nobody gets an inheritance unless somebody dies. And so the son is asking the father for an inheritance. What's the son saying to the father? Yeah. Dad, I wish you were dead. You know, I was looking at my watch, and you're taking your time. I need you to speed things along. Could you hurry up and be dead to me, Dad? It's pretty insulting, right? Pretty insulting. But what does the father do? Does the father get angry? Does the father go, oh, you better not turn your back? You better watch yourself when you're sleeping at night? No. What does the father do? Okay, fine. The father's probably hurt. It's probably upsetting, probably is angering, but the father goes, okay, go for it. I'll let you. I'll let you have it. And so he hands the son his inheritance. He cashes out the inheritance. Goes on. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I love when the Bible euphemizes things. It's like the son went out into southwest Nevada and squandered his inheritance in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And the son was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So 
There's some of you in this room, like me, who have lived recklessly. So as I went through college, um, I needed to finish up. I had two majors, and I needed to finish up one of them, which was Spanish. And the best way to do that, to knock out a whole Spanish degree, was to just go spend a year in a, in a foreign country that speaks Spanish and just do all in, in just intense study. And so I went to Spain for a year. And the Spanish, they are very good at reckless living. They do it very well. Uh, not only are they good at doing reckless living, they usually start the reckless living before the sun goes down, and they aren't finished with it until after the sun comes back up again. And you know you've done it well when, when you're in the club and the doors open and you have to squint because of the sunlight coming in. And so I went to Spain, and I had all the good intent. I was going to go there, and I was going to be an ambassador for Christ. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go out there, and I'm going to basically do this like a mission trip. Um, but I went to Spain, and I, and I did the opposite. And I did the opposite, and I got into the lifestyle. Had a great time. I, it's like I was, doing a, I was minoring in defining the word hedonism. And I lived, if there was a thing to live for there, I lived it up. On Monday nights and Tuesday nights, the, the clubs didn't have locals show up because they were all, you know, being normal and not partying hard on a Monday night. So they would do, have specials for foreign students. So on Monday and Tuesdays, I would go party with the, the foreign students, such as myself. And then when the weekend rolled around, I would join my Spanish friends, and I would go live it up with them. And it was just a cyclical, cyclical party. And I remember one crucial moment where I just kind of had this internal thought where I was just like, I don't think I'm doing this Jesus thing anymore. Like I knew I wasn't living the Jesus thing anymore. That was clear. But I actually had this conscious moment where I was like, you know, I'm done. Kind of just push it away. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing the God thing anymore. I don't, I don't think I'm doing that. I don't think that's me anymore. And I pushed it away. Like the son, like the younger son, I was just like, you know what? God's kind of dead to me. And you know what God did? Like the father. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. That's fine. Go ahead. See, a lot of times I think we think that God's up there like Zeus with a lightning bolt waiting to strike us down. But Romans 1 says that God is just like this father in the story and actually just goes, okay, and hands us over and just lets us go. And so I went and I went, living it up until one moment, one night, in the middle. And I mean, I was in the middle living it up. Something happened. A switch flipped in my head. And I got up mid-hedonism. And I walked out to my balcony. And I stood on my balcony. And I broke down crying. Not a crier. Not because I'm tough and manly. But because in my family, the men, we suppress our emotions like healthy men. You just stuff them when you feel it coming up. You just push it down. But, oh, man, the floodgates opened up that night. And I just started crying and bawling. 
And I started crying to God. And I just remember crying, God, you must hate me. You must absolutely despise me. And I wasn't crying and feeling that way because I'd done some bad things. I want to be very clear. Sin isn't you did some bad things. That's not sin. God does not condemn us because we did a couple bad things. I was broken down because I realized I was like that son and I had spited God with everything in me. That I had said to God, I wish you were dead. That I had insulted God. To the very core of my being, I had turned against him. And what made it especially upsetting to me is that before, when I was in Paul's youth group, I didn't know any better. I was ignorant. But now in Spain, I had been a leader. I had been leading Bible studies. I'd been wearing the t-shirts. I had the bumper stickers. I was saying that I was somebody for God. I knew better, and I had no excuse now. In spite of claiming to know God and claiming to love God and claiming to be all for God, I had told God, basically, I hate you. And in that moment on the balcony, that clarity hit me. That clarity hit me, and I broke down, and I, that's why I said, God, you must despise me. And if at that moment God would have made a hurricane wind sweep up the balcony and rip me off and bring me to my death 15 floors below, I'd have been like on the way down like, yep, I earned it because I was broken. And this is where the sun is. The sun's in the same place. We'll get there. And so what I did the next morning is I, I called up a friend. I'd met this missionary. Um, he was a missionary in Spain. He, he's, his last name is French, but he's from Ireland, and he's a missionary in Spain. A little confusing. His name was Derek. And I called up Derek, and I said, Derek, we got to meet. And I met with him the next day, and I was like, um, I haven't been living very well. And he's like, yeah, I know. You, uh, you, you called my house uh, drunk one morning looking for my sister-in-law. We call that a clue, buddy. <laughs> and so Derek and I met, and we started going through the Gospel of John. Gospel that we're going through right now in this church. So I love the Gospel of John. And Derek, it started opening my eyes to the Gospel again. To new depths that I'd never seen. It was like I was saved again. And so the son goes through the same experience, and I want to look at that experience. The son says, he comes to himself, and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He prepares this grand speech, right? I'm going to go back to the father, and I'm going to prepare this great speech. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the son says, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make this right. And so the son arose and he came to his father. But. But means pay attention. Something's going to be a little different than what you're expecting. But while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. Now, I don't know if the father's sitting on the porch in a rocking chair with a pair of binoculars just waiting for it to happen. But the father sees the son. It doesn't say the son goes, and then he sees the father, and he goes up and gives him this grand speech and makes it all right again. No, it says that the father sees the son. And the father does what? He runs to him. Now, that may not sound ridiculous to you, because remember, it's going to be physical and ridiculous. But when you get out of the shower, next time you take a shower, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one big towel, wrap it around your waist. Another big towel, wrap it around your shoulders. And then pretend someone's breaking into your front door and you've got to go defend your house. How graceful is that going to look? Be tripping over the towel down the stairs. They wore robes in Jesus' day. So the father's sitting there. He sees his son. He's like, that's my boy. He's coming back. I'm going to go get him. Goes running, hikes up his robe, goes running, it's my boy, tackles him, starts kissing him. Oh, you're back, you're back. Starts embracing him. You see, when I was in Spain, I didn't actually come back to God. But that, but God chased me down in the middle of my pursuing pleasure he chased me down and he tackled me on that balcony and he said you're coming back I'm bringing you back and he woke me up from my stupor and so the son gets tackled by the father and he tries to give him the speech father I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and the father's still on him kissing him quiet hey servants he says to the servants Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead but he's now alive and he was lost and is found and they threw a big party. You see, the son wants to, he wants to punish himself. He wants to, you know, oh, poor me, father. Oh, poor, and the father's like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. I tackled you. Get the best clothes and put it on him. Get the ring, the one with my name on it that says he's my boy and has my authority and my blessing. Get that ring and put it back on his finger. Because see, we always want to try to earn God's love. And God is like, you haven't done anything to earn it. I saw you way down there. Way before you started trying to earn it, I saw you and I tackled you and I dragged you in. And so this moment for me of being tackled by God on that balcony and brought back in, I mean, it changed me. I wanted to go into ministry. All I wanted to do is talk about, all I want to do is tell people that you're the younger son. God wants to tackle you. God wants to bring you in. He wants to put the ring on you and throw a big party. And there's nothing that you can do. He's going to chase you down. There's nothing you're going to do to earn it, to make him want to do it more. He saw you a long way and chased you down. And that's all I wanted to do is tell that story. 
but we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about the older brother. Because while I relate to the younger son, there's also a lot of older brother in me. So let's talk about the older brother. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to the older brother, well, your younger brother's come home and your father killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated the older brother back in. But the older son answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has come, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? You gave him the good veal? And the father said to him, son, you, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, if you can't relate to the older brother, then I guess we're just not understanding what's going on here. What's the older brother saying? Dad, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. The son is upset with how ridiculous it is. And the thing is, the gospel is ridiculous. It is absurd. And a lot of times, we want to, we, we, we come into the gospel like the younger brother. But then we start to drift into the older brother. We, we, pride creeps in. And we want to start being proud about the way we serve God and the way that we love God and the things we've done for God and the way we live our lives and how we conduct our families. And, and that's awesome. We should live upstanding lives and have good families. But we let pride creep in. And in this, the father is also going out to the older brother and saying, you need to come in too. You need to come in just as much as the younger brother you need to come in and celebrate my love as much as he did. And so, in my walk with God, I constantly bounce back and forth between the two brothers. I constantly have mess-ups where I fall off and I find myself doing stupid things, chasing stupid desires, saying dumb things. And I also find myself becoming apathetic and prideful about how well I've done and forgetting that I was the prodigal son. And so we have to find an identity that centers us. So when I came back from Spain, I ended up meeting my wife a short time after and I was working in ministry and my, as our relationship got more serious, we, we had to have the talk. You know, we're kind of having the talk of like, okay, this might be going somewhere. Can we talk about things that happened in the past? Because she had a pretty innocent upbringing and a pretty innocent uh, past life in dating. And I had quite the opposite. And she wasn't sure, she wasn't sure she was ready for that. 
She wasn't sure she could grasp everything that had gone on in my past. And so I told her this. I said, look, I get it. I get it. I did a lot of dumb things. I said, but this is what I'm about now. And if you can get on board with this, then we can do this together. If you can get on board with this and celebrate with me this one verse, then we can do this together. And I read her this verse. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think the NIV says, I am the chief of sinners. I love that. But I received mercy for that reason, for this reason, that in me, the chief, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to others who were to believe in him for eternal life. I said to her, I said, look, I get it. I'm the chief of sinners. Between the two of us, I'm winning, I'm, I'm winning the chief. I get that one. I said, but now we can point to all the dumb things I did and we can tell others, look, if God can love me, he can love you. If God can love this guy, then he can love you. And so I told her, I said, so I'm going to wear this as my identity. The chief sinner who God somehow loved anyway. Because the gospel is ridiculous. And it's also physical. The cross, the road to Calvary was so physical. Jesus chased you down when he carried the cross up that hill. Jesus was chasing us down when he was being nailed to the cross. Jesus was chasing us then. And I said, it's ridiculous. But God loves me. Can you buy into that? And I guess she did, because we're still married. And so what I want to say to you guys today is, are you the older brother? Or are you the prodigal son? Because the truth is, every one of us in here is both of them. Every one of us in here, at some point, whether it was in pride or action, have spurned God on and said, I don't need you anymore. And we've pushed him away. And in so doing, we've angered him. But God, who is good, who is constant in his kindness and forgiveness, has chased every one of us down. And some of you are the older brother right now, and you're with the pigs, and you got nothing but pig food and mud. And you're in here because you're broken, and you're that person. You're my daughter. And there's some of you in here right now are more relating to the older brother. Just kind of grow callous. Just kind of cold. Doesn't really matter to the gospel. I'm here. I'm doing great. You know, the gospel, whatever. And just like the father goes out to the older son, he's calling to you and treating you. Wake up to the gospel. Get excited again about the gospel. Remember that you once were the prodigal son. I want to throw parties. There's people out there that I'm still looking to tackle and to chase down, and I need you to get excited about it and join me. Which one are you? Let's pray.
Father, there's two kinds of people in this room. and Actually, all of us are really on the spectrum, and you know our hearts, and you know where we're at. Is that we're all somewhere between these, these two sons. Is some of us in here, God, are broken, and we're hurting, and there's ugliness in us. We just want to get it out, but we don't know how. And I just pray, God, that for your Holy Spirit to come. And like you broke me on the balcony, just break them open right now, God. And then there's those of us that are like the older brother. We're, we're just not that excited about your love. We're just not that excited about the ridiculousness and the aggressiveness of how you chase us down. God, I pray that you would also break that in us. That we would once again find that original love we had for you, God. Father, I pray that we would put all other identities inside and that we would embrace the identity that We are the chief of sinners, and we are deeply loved, and you can't wait to display your love to others through how much you love us. God, may you make yourself great through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.